Well, good morning, everybody. Could you open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 12? We're going to be studying verses 20 through 26. Um, but be, before we do that, I would just like to request prayer from you. Um, um, the last day we were in Nepal, uh, back in February, just the beginning of March, uh, Barnabas turned to me and said, would you come back to teach at a pastor's conference? And my first question was, well, when? when? I'm thinking next year. He says, May? Um, those of you who know me know that, that I'm, I'm, you know, we have courageous missionaries in our church. I am a cowardly missionary. Um, except for when I get there. It's a privilege to serve with that man. And, and you just fall in love with the people. You just fall, you just, Lord, just melts your heart with love for the people. So we've talked about it as a team. Um, we got more information from Barnabas. This is representing 167 churches in their network. They're estimating an attendance of some 400. I asked him, what, what is he thinking about a theme and what is he wanting to, to be taught on? And uh, he He's, he loves the seven shared values of Sovereign Grace Churches. And he said, I'd love it to be based on the seven shared values of Sovereign Grace Churches. And I said, okay, well, which ones would you want me to, to speak about? And he said, all of them. All of them. <laughs> um, then he goes on to say, some of these pastors will be traveling for three days one way to get there. Walking, buses. Um, so needless to say, uh, who is sufficient, right? Totally experiencing the weight of inadequacy, and I just need prayer. I just need prayer. Uh, so I would ask you to do that. We leave two weeks from yesterday, uh, so two weeks away for this. Um, Steve Abampato is my gospel partner on this trip. And I'm so glad that he is able to go with me. My security blanket of Alan can't go this time. And uh, I'm so glad, Steve, that, uh, that you, your heart was such that you, you would go with me on this trip. Two Sovereign Grace pastors from the Philippines will be joining us there. And uh, we'll be meeting with, with Barnabas and his team uh, following the conference just to talk about his desire to become uh, a part of the Sovereign Grace family of churches and what that looks like and how that comes to be. So anyway, uh, could, could you please pray for me? And please pray for Steve, for, that, for the conference. And you know, These are people who, they get, they get up and they don't know if they're going to experience persecution in their lives that day. I'm wondering what I'm going to have for breakfast. They're wondering if they're going to face maybe meeting the Lord that day. Um, because of the persecution that exists. So thank you so much for that. So John chapter 12, verses 20 through 26. Um, we've mentioned in the past that the, the first half of the book of John has been called the book of, uh, the book of signs. 
And so if you recall, we tried to highlight for you, there are seven signs that God inspired John to highlight as he was writing the book of, of John. Um, and each of those signs held a unique place in, in the book that pointed beyond the sign themselves, which is our big problem. We just love to get st stuck at the sign. We, we, just, we love a miracle for a miracle's sake. And God never does those things just to help us land on a miracle. He points beyond it to the fact that this was the long-promised Messiah. This was the long-awaited Savior of sinners. So that was the first half of the book of John. The second half, the theologians have called the book of glory. So here's what I want you to be looking for as we read the text this morning. Um, I want you to be looking for... What, what, does, what does glory mean to John? What does glory mean in the text? Hopefully that'll come out really clearly, uh, both in the reading of the text as well as in the preaching of the text. Um, what, what does glory look like for us? Is there a place where Christ's glory would be received through us? And if so, what kind of life would bring about that kind of glory for him? Uh, so be thinking of those things as we read. Just a few verses today. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Well, Philip went and told Andrew. And Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Wow. Oh, Lord. We want your glory. And we're like these Greeks. We want to see Jesus. We want to know Jesus more clearly. So would you open our eyes and melt our hearts and fill us with the Holy Spirit so that we can not only understand your word, but to obey it, to live in the good of it, to do what it calls us to do so that Jesus could receive all the glory possible and that people from all nations could receive the godly good and the fruit that would come from that. Please help us. Help me as a preacher. Help us as listeners. We love you. And thank you for being a speaking God. In Jesus' name, amen. 
I was listening to an interview this week with Rosaria Butterfield. It was so good. I just was so, so blessed by what the Lord has done in her life. And the particular topic was on homosexuality, the transgender movement, and what it means to be Christians who, who respond theologically, lovingly, and obediently, and not, not just culturally, but theologically, lovingly, and obediently to the Lord. There was a section of the interview where she expressed gratitude for her salvation and that all that God has already done in saving her out of her sinful depravity, which included saving her out of the lifestyle of homosexuality. You've got to go back, and if you've never read her testimony, uh, she never highlights a symptom, a sin symptom, as the main issue in the human heart. Uh, so many times people just would, would want to talk about the symptoms of sins, homosexuality or pornography or whatever. And um, she said that the way the Lord saved her is, is not by telling her she needed to be saved from homosexuality, though that, that was an issue in her life, and she was living inconsistently with what God says in his word. But the issue wasn't primarily being saved from homosexuality. The issue was being saved from depravity. And so she is grateful about her salvation. And, and as God saved her from depravity, God also rescued her out of that lifestyle of homosexuality. Depravity first, and then isn't it interesting how then all of these other sin habits can now be changed as well. But along with thanksgiving, she expressed a longing for God to be glorified in rescuing her from both the sin habits she currently struggles with, along with her tendency to be reluctant towards surrendering even good things for God's greater glory. She used a phrase that I cannot get out of my heart and mind, and I hope this kind of plants in you too. She said there are still so many sins that she has, instead of seeking to put them to death, she's got these sins, and instead of seeking to put them to death, she instead seems to try to keep them on life support. And so I just had that imagery, is that I, I can't get off of that. What sins do I have? I mean, so picture 911, picture like an emergency room, picture, you know, the alarms and all the, the, the monitors are going off and, and, and there's all this stuff, code blue or code red, or I don't know what color code you should have or shouldn't have. But what, what things, I mean, you can imagine the, the doctors and nurses rushing in and, and trying to sustain the life. Like, what do we need? What, what heroic things do we need to do to keep our sins on life support? Or to keep our comfort on life support? Almost to the point that we, they can't even be questioned. They're good things, and because they're good things, there should be no need for giving them up. It just gets to me. So I've just been meditating and pondering that, and it goes so hand in glove with our text this morning. We don't want to turn even good things into ultimate things and love them more than we love Christ. So what sins or what good things do you find yourself maybe keeping on life support lately? Um... Instead of singing, I surrender all, right? 
I, I, I'll just flat out be honest with you. I think sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm using the right words, but I think, I think I, I say from my heart, I surrender all dot, 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 except. <laughs> well, this text, I've told a few people, I was talking to Alan even this morning. I think I need the verses we're studying today more than I've ever needed them in all of my 63 years of being alive. I think I need them more than I've needed them in all my 43 years of being saved. And more than I've ever needed them in all my 36 years of being in pastoral ministry. And, and I think there, there are passages that I tend to assume I know and thus assume I'm living in. Can you assume anything and have it be really active in your life? I'm assuming that I'm taking up my cross daily and following the Lord, but I sure get frustrated at, at somebody driving 25 miles an hour in a 50-mile-hour zone. I'm assuming that I'm living theologically when the application of the things I believe can be really thin too often. I've never felt like I've needed these passages more than I need them today. I don't want to get older and more grumpy. I don't want to say this far is good enough. I love it. Wouldn't, I, wouldn't you love it that with your last breath you are praising God and sharing the gospel with someone else? The moments before you die. Loving your spouse like you've never loved them before. Discipling your kids like you've never discipled them before. I need this passage, and I hope, I hope it's maybe stirring something even in you this morning, saying, I need it too, Billy. I need it too. So can I give you some questions I've been pondering about this life support thing? What am I keeping on life support that really needs to be mortified? Or what am, I, what am I refusing to surrender that's even a good thing that I'm just, I'm just somehow thinking that that's the ultimate in my happiness and I'm, I'm afraid to lose it? So let me ask you some questions. Have you ever had these thoughts recently? Because they may be indications that we're loving our life too much. We're not denying ourselves enough. We are not taking up our cross to follow the Lord enough. So how about just a few thoughts? And all of these are very personal to me. So if, if they don't apply to you, pray for me, <laughs> okay? Because there are issues I deal with. How about this one? Why do I always have to be the one to forgive? Hmm, okay. Why do I always have to be the one to apologize? Have you said something like this recently? I'm tired of giving all the time. Are you increasingly taking things personally that are not personal? Like the 25 mile an hour guy. It's amazing how I can just get all thinking that he's just doing this to drive me crazy. There's worse issues than that. Are you responding to critique or criticism defensively, which ultimately becomes adversarial? What do you think? What do you think about more? How will this make Christ look? Or how will this make me look? Do you think of love as a blessing to receive more than a sacrifice that you give? Do you find yourself using terminology of things I deserve? Things I deserve terminology. I deserve time to myself. I deserve respect. 
I deserve appreciation. What do you prioritize more, your spiritual health or your physical health? Has someone failed you recently in such a way that you're actually eager to respond to them in sinful anger? And that's usually somebody, maybe it's failed you in a big way or maybe failed you repeatedly. And you're putting up with them, but you're sitting on the edge of your chair. And if they do it again, you are just all too eager to be angry. You know, there's a scripture that says, don't be eager to be angry. Did you know that? If you ask me where it is, I'd have to say, I can't remember right now. But look it up. Google it. It's, 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 it's in the word. Don't be eager to be angry. Do you spend more time justifying why you don't share the gospel than you do joyfully sharing the gospel? Are there roles or responsibilities in the church that you don't do because somehow they're beneath you? Or because, how about this one? Or because, you know, I already served in that ministry years ago. Do you see yourself as currently pursuing more of Christ regardless of what it costs you or pursuing more of your comforts regardless of what they cost you? If you were to budget your time, would you be under budget on helping someone become a stronger follower of Christ and over budget on using your time for your own personal comfort? Do you see disagreement as an opportunity to distance yourself from a person rather than an opportunity to love them? Am I finding joy in the service of someone else's success? Or am I more concerned about my own success? Do you see patience as a way of loving someone or just what you do to put up with them? As you age, are you tempted to believe that we can somehow retire from denying ourselves and taking up our cross in the same way we retire from a job? What sins or what pleasures or comforts do you find yourself keeping on life support? Am I trying to keep alive something that God has sentenced to death when I became a Christian? So our main point this morning is this. Christ is glorified through his death on the cross and by our taking up our cross daily to follow him. Let's look at that as we unpack John chapter 12. In verse 9, the first point is the crucifixion of Christ brings him glory. And we see that in 20 through 24. The whole world, verse 19, we didn't read that. This is where we ended last week. Pharisees are just upset like they couldn't be more upset. Jesus has been going into Jerusalem with the shouts of Hosanna. There are who knows how many people, I don't know if it's hundreds or thousands, that are surrounding him and hailing him as their king. And, and they're so mad that they say, look at that. Well, a lot of good our plans have done. Look, the whole world is going after him. Now, that's not going to stop them. Remember, here's what. Actually, it's just made their job harder. It's going to be a lot harder to kill this guy when there's so many people praising him. That's what they're thinking. But it's amazing how God has things come out of people's mouths that actually are telling the story of what he is doing. Because in verse 20 through 22, we do actually see the world going to Jesus. 
The hearts of the nations were beginning to be opened as promised back as far back as Genesis 12. Remember, you, you really could say the Great Commission started in the book of Genesis. You know, it didn't start at Matthew 28. It really started in the book of Genesis. God's all people plan for salvation, all people groups plan of salvation started back then in the promised seed of Abraham would all peoples be blessed. And that was Jesus. That was a foreshadowing of Jesus. And so this is all taking place right now. And these Greeks coming to Jesus are the sign of it. See, these aren't, these aren't necessarily Greek Greeks, the, Greek, the term here is just non-Jews. So if you just kind of took the broad between Jew and Gentile, these are non-Jews, but they are now stirred up by the fact that Jesus is approachable for us. Now what had happened where, and there's some disagreement on the chronology here, but it seems like between the, the triumphal entrance into Jerusalem, there was another day where at some point in there, Jesus cleanses the temple again. And if you remember what he did there, it, it would have been very attractive to a non-Jew, to a proselyte, who, somebody who wasn't Jewish by ethnicity, but they were interested in the one God uh, that the Jews served and worshiped. And so when Jesus cleanses the temple, a specific area that was cleansed was the court of the Gentiles. Interesting, right? Court of the Gentiles, because that was a place where there was some, some sense, right, that, that this God was the God of all peoples, not just the God of one tribe. This was a God of all peoples. And so Jesus is so upset because in all of the marketing that they were doing and all this, the, the jacked up prices and, and charging for blood sacrifices, and there were just so much wrong of what they were doing. A lot of it was housed in the court of the Gentiles, i.e. us four and no more. It, this, this, is, this is a God who only is concerned about Israel. And he's not. He's a God who's concerned about saving all people from all kinds of nations, from all nations, not all people universally, but all kinds of people from all nations. And Jesus said, you remember what he said? You will not turn my house into a house of, of, of marketing, but into a house of, you said, prayer for who? All people, all nations, all nations. Oh, well, so now this is, yeah, and you can kind of see how the Holy Spirit would be using all of this in stirring and drawing the hearts of these Greeks to want to come to see Jesus. So, so they, that's what they come. They come and they make their request to Philip and to Andrew. Why Philip and Andrew? Commentators will all over the map about that. They have Greek names. They, were, they, they grew up in the area that was more related to where these Greeks would have come from. So maybe there was some connection there um, that they felt more comfortable to come to, to Philip and Andrew. But the text doesn't tell us, did they get to see Jesus? That's, that's not what it says. What the text is telling us is how all people can see Jesus. Not just 2,000 years ago, not just these folks. This is for you. Your name is right here in this verse. How can you see Jesus? How, did, how has God intended to reveal Jesus to the world? To give us his love and his grace and his mercy. 
This is how anyone comes to know and love and follow Jesus. This is how anyone comes to see Jesus clearly. And his answer gives us some ideas of what he's pointing to. He talks about his hour. My hour has come. So if you remember, we tried to highlight it up up through John 11, where there were places that it would say, but his hour had not yet come. They they were going to try to kill him, but his hour had not yet come. It was all pointing to his death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection. That's what the hour was all pointing to. This time when new life and forgiveness and righteousness and adoption could be granted to all who believe in him because of what he would do with that hour. So that's why he says the hour has come. He calls himself the son of man. And it's just a beautiful phrase. It's meaning that all of the deity and glory and power and sovereignty and love and mercy of God were found in one divine person. And, this, and here's what's, what's crazy. This one divine person was not just coming in to ride, to, to be glorified and, and take over political realms and sit on somebody else's throne as a king. This, this divine person was coming to die. And you cannot know Jesus unless you know him through the cross. We will never know and understand and appreciate and love and adore Jesus unless we see him through what he did on the cross. So that's why he says, now's the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Not in the shouts of Hosanna, but actually in in his Father forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. It is finished. That's where justice and mercy meet. We sang about that today. How is God glorified? The word glory means to be revealed in such a way that, you worship, that you're compelled to worship and adore and love and obey him. So when we want to glorify Jesus, it's not, it's not a, just an emotional thing. It's a, it's, it's, it's a apprehension. It's seeing him for who he is. That's why we sing the gospel. We pray the gospel. We preach the gospel. That's why there's so many lyrics to our songs. Because, because we want to describe him as clearly as possible and as, and, and as such what? As worshipfully as possible. Because we're seeing him for who he is. That's what it means to be glorified. So he describes his death using the most humble illustration that I think you could possibly use, and it's such a beautiful illustration, he describes his death using an illustration that's filled with humility and weakness. They wanted him to come in strength, didn't they? They wanted him to come and knock Rome off of their governing seat, and if they had to do it militarily, if if heads had to roll, if blood had to be shed, so be it, as long as we get our, our throne back and our nation back and... Instead, he uses humility and weakness as the way of talking about his glory. And he says, he calls it the death of a seed. (laughs) The death of a seed. Well, the purpose of a seed is not to be kept on a shelf, is it? How many of you do some gardening? Ben Spiegel, I know you do, Ben. Can you put your hands up? Because you are totally welcome to come to me after the service and say, it is so obvious you know nothing about gardening. Um, so that's okay. You want to do that. 
But I think we all know enough that there's something miraculous, and there's at least to me there, it's miraculous that you take this seed and, and it might be a pretty seed. I don't know, Ben, are there some seeds that are prettier than other seeds? Are there? I don't know, they just look like seeds that I just kind of want to spit out of my mouth. I don't know, you know, I mean, it just... So I guess there could be seeds that are admirable seeds. I guess there could be seeds that you would keep on a shelf and, and somehow admire and, and just think, I, look at my seed. <laughs> and if anyone came into your house, I think they would go, you're really missing the glory of the seed. That seed was never intended to stay on a shelf by itself. See, I think, I think teaching like this, that Jesus is a good teacher, I think it's just admiring this, this noble seed. But it just stays on itself, on the, on the shelf. It doesn't help anyone. Oh, but well, he gave us some good teachings. We'll try to imitate his teachings and follow his teachings. Oh, no, you're totally missing out on the glory of the seed, aren't you? He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a benevolent uh, human being. He's not just the kindest of the kindest of men. He, he, he was so much more than just a seed. A seed was designed by the Lord to be buried. Because if it stays on the shelf, it's not going to produce anything. I want you to be tying your life into this. In what parts of your life are you on a shelf? That you're just, you're just pulling back from even the slightest hint that you may have to give up something. You may have to lay something down. You may have to sacrifice something. You may have to take that something off of life support in order to have a greater expression of life. But isn't that what happens to a seed? You, you bury the seed and up comes a harvest. Up, you bury an apple seed and up comes an apple tree with multiple pieces of fruit and more seed to plant for more harvest. This is what he's talking about. The glory of a seed is not by its, in its essence in itself. The glory of a seed is in its death. The glory of a seed is in its burial. That's what brings the harvest. And if you know Christ today, so here we are some 2,000 years later. I mean, I mean I don't, you don't have to look long at anybody. Don't freak anybody out by staring at anybody. But look around this room. Just, just swivel your head. Come on. Swivel your head just a little bit. Come, I'll pay your chiropractic bill. Swivel your head just a little bit. All of these people, if, you, if, they, if, it, if people know Jesus Christ in this room, they know Jesus Christ in this room because there was a seed buried 2,000 years ago that brought a harvest that has reached Midland, Texas, or wherever the Lord opened your heart. It might have been up in Michigan. It might have been who knows where. But there's a bunch of miracles sitting in this room. We are, we are the harvest that he gave himself up for. Oh, we should be amazed with that. This is not a religious convention, is it? This isn't about just, we just have some common things in common and we're all just trying to be better people. That's not it. We're miracles. We were once dead and we've been made alive in Christ Jesus. You're part of the harvest. Even though that death might have been hard, that death of Jesus, that burial was hard. Oh my goodness, Jesus had a wonderful motivation and joy in offering his life as a sacrifice. It's in your notes, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely 
And let us run with endurance for the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. God's glory was Jesus' motivation, to be sure, but the harvest, the joy of the harvest was his motivation. Your becoming a Christian was his motivation to do the hardest thing he would ever have to do, and that's to, to absorb, to bear the wrath of God for the sins that you and I have committed. That was his joy. So when we talk today about laying something down or letting something go or taking something off of child support, it's not so that God just leaves us, oh, well, I have Jesus. God calls anything to die. It's because he wants something to live. And what he wants to live is always going to be better than what you're holding on to keep. It's always going to be better. That's what the text is telling us. That's the foundational verse of this passage. The price is fully paid by Christ's crucifixion. We have what we most need in Christ. Christ is our life, our joy, our peace, and our hope. Thus, we can sacrifice our lives without losing anything because Christ is our everything. That's what it means to be the harvest. That's the fruit that he bore is a fruit that is full of contentment and joy as Christians. So when he sacrifices, listen, you go read any missionary biography, particularly those who were martyred. And I don't know that I've ever read a missionary biography where the missionary at some point doesn't say, I can't even, when I look into the face of, of eternity and the prospect of spending eternity with Jesus and the harvest of people from all people groups being around the throne worshiping him, I just have come to a place I can't even call sacrifice, sacrifice because of what I will receive for eternity. I don't even know how I can call it sacrifice. It is sacrifice, but it's just hard to call sacrifice because I'm gaining so much. The idea of sacrifice I have as an unbeliever is I'm losing so much. The Christian life is a paradox. We lose. We're willing to lose because of all that God gives us. Not just for, not for personal comforts, but for his glory and the advancement of his mission. So are you going through anything right now that just feels like it's killing you? Have you had that thought lately? This, this is going to kill me. Now, some, I mean, God forbid, you know, I know there are precious people in our church that are going through physical things and sickness and, and death could be a definite possibility there. And this would apply to that, but I'm talking about that thing where you're ready to give up. Ready to give up on your marriage, ready to give up on your church, ready to give up on your job, ready to give up on your school. There's just so many things. We're only as committed as we are comfortable in this nation. It's a horrible thing. That, that should never be how a Christian is ever living. We're only committed based on the comfortability? No, no. Are you going through anything that's making you feel like you're gonna, you need to give up? This feels like it's killing me. Well, 
Go back to the word. Because the closer you are to the feeling of death, literally or metaphorically, is actually, the truth is, you're actually very close to a harvest. You're actually very close to life. A greater experience of life inwardly for you in knowing Jesus and loving him more, but also a greater experience of life through you. The, the giving of that life to other people. There's no way, guys, on this side of heaven to make all of life's suffering not feel like suffering. So I, I just I want to be so careful in talking about these things because suffering is suffering. It hurts. It's scary. But there's a right way to interpret our suffering. And I don't think we do a very good job with it. And that's to understand that in the moment where death feels the closest is where God is just about to break forth in growth and godliness or an advancement of the gospel or courage to share the gospel with someone that you've been so afraid to share the gospel with. There's so many illustrations, but the way of Christ is always going to be the way through death. But it will always bring fruitfulness. It will always bring a harvest. Christ's crucifixion is meant to compel our imitation of that sacrifice in the way that we're willing to surrender all to Jesus for his glory and harvest. That's why I put in some lyrics to one of the great hymns of the faith. And so this is in your notes. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died. That's what we've just done. Unless a seed dies and is buried, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies... It brings a harvest. It brings fruitfulness. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, <laughs> my richest gain, I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. So that's, I think that's how the text flows. And I'm going to guess that's how the hymn was written. That's what inspired the hymn. Because the crucifixion of Christ compels the imitation of Christ. So that's our second point. The imitation of Christ brings Jesus' glory as well. And that's in verse 25. When we think of losing our life or hating our life in this world or not loving our life or denying ourselves and taking up our cross to follow Christ, let's remember to start where Jesus starts, okay? The glory of God. Joy in God. Joy in the harvest, not, not what is being lost, but what is gained. What is gained. So here we go, just using some cross-references here. Philippians 3, 7 through 10. This is in your notes. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Why? Oh, for the sake of Christ. <laughs> Are you kidding? I'd be, I'd be foolish not to do that. Indeed, I count everything as loss because... Listen to language. Surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Is that the surpassing worth of your life? What is the surpassing worth today for you? What is of surpassing worth? I would have to say, depends on what time you ask me. I, I hate to tell you that. I'm your pastor. I hate to tell you stuff like that. But it depends when you ask me because too often the surpassing worth of my life is not knowing Christ. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish 
in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that God, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death. So it always go back to surveying the wonderful cross, Surveying how rich you are in Christ. Eternally rich in Christ. We have to start there. Because if you don't, you're going you're gonna to interpret your Christian life as constantly, God keeps asking this of me. And I feel like I, 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 feel like I barely have anything left. Or that somehow I'm giving out of a deficit. <laughs> it's impossible for a believer to give out of a de- deficit. We've received grace upon grace out of his kindness. We have all received grace upon grace out of his fullness. We've received grace. We've got to start there, particularly when God is calling you to make a sacrifice. Remember what you have. It makes what you're holding on to look a lot smaller. So let's talk about living in such a way that keeps us from focusing on ourselves as the center of the universe and keeps us, um, and keeps us more in bondage and enslaved to those things. Let's focus as Christ as the center of our lives, growing in a love for him that makes it seem like we hate everything else. This isn't an Eeyore verse. I'm too much of an Eeyore, but this isn't an Eeyore verse. This isn't, oh, what, how are you doing, Billy? Oh, I'm just hating my life. That's not what this is saying. It's, this is actually a pretty joyful verse. It's actually saying, oh my goodness, I, I have so much in Jesus that I would hope if anything that he asked me, I hope it would look like I hate my life in the sense that there's nothing I will not willingly let go of if he could use it for his glory. You see that? It's, it's, it's like it looks like hate. I'm so ready to let it go. I mean, isn't that what hate does? Hate lets people go. I'm willing to let that person go. I'm willing to let this go because I already have so much in Jesus. I have so much in him. It's not self-loathing, but self-denial. It is that. And this isn't talking about big missionary, martyr, big event types of sacrifice here. This is the normal Christian life. And guys, I'm afraid that you, we leave this room together, we get out, we're baptized afresh in the, in the culture of the world, the fallenness of the world, the philosophies of the world, the deceit of the world, the dece- deceptions of Satan. And I just, I just think we, get, we just start living. It's so easy to just live for personal comfort rather than for Christ's glory. But this is the normal Christian life. It's in your notes. Look, look, look. <laughs> look at Luke. Look, Luke. Tough, tough to say back to back. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And, said to, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. When? Say it. Daily. Daily. It's lifestyle. 
This is a lifestyle. This is not heroic missionary martyr moments. This is a daily death to my preferences, a daily death to my selfishness, a, a daily death to my being an, a, an idol worshiper and refusing to give up something I've idolized, even if it's a good thing. So he goes a little further. And um, take up his cross daily and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Loving Jesus means loving him more than we love our life. We're thankful for the good things we have in life. Let's be super thankful people. If you're going to have a steak today, oh man, jump up and down and get excited about it. As you praise God for the glory that he's allowed food to taste good when we really deserved it to taste like dirt. That's what we should have gotten. He, I mean, how kind of God to have even fed us that. But we really deserve for it to taste like dirt. Not, not Wagyu. Whatever. <laughs> I don't even know. I don't know. I don't know. Gardening. I don't know. Cattle. I don't know anything. <laughs> Was that Donald McClure back there? Yeah. See, Donald, one of, even out of the mouth of babes, they, they said it was you. <sighs> Guys, we don't come to Christ in order to... We don't come to Christ in order to get the most comfortable, trouble-free, pain-free life possible. Too many people view the Christian life as trusting Jesus in order to get to heaven, to avoid big and obvious sins, and then spend the rest of my time trying to be as comfortable and entertained as possible, particularly in how, how I spend my time and money. One of the greatest roadblocks to local and global disciple making is not just avoiding evil, but loving good things too much. You, you can tell you're maturing in Christ when you're realizing that you're not just seeking to say no to sin, but also willing to give up anything for the Lord. Even the good things you're willing to lay down for God's greater glory or for the mission of multiplying and maturing disciples. You ever hear the, it's a silly story. I, I've never been able to validate if it's true or not, but apparently a way that in places where there are monkeys, a way they, they trap monkeys is to put a banana in a jar. Have you ever heard this illustration before? <laughs> it's, it's, it's humorous when we think about us in, in a minute here, but they said that the monkey will go ahead and, and there is a, you know, a little bit wider opening. It comes down, narrows, and it opens up wider where the banana is. So put the banana down. The monkey puts his hand down, right? So the shape of the hand is like this. Goes down in through the narrowing, grabs the banana. And they say, literally, the monkey will... <laughs> Who's a slave to who here? The monkey has become a slave of the banana. What are you holding on to that looks maybe as silly? If you see it from the heaven of the perspective of the, of the throne of grace of Jesus, what are you holding on to? You're not even realizing, oh my goodness, I've become a slave to this thing. I will not let it go. I think I know better. 
So, okay, well, okay, go ahead. <laughs> Carry your banana wherever you go. You're not going to get to, you don't enjoy it. You're not even enjoying it. You can't even eat the doggone thing. Oh, but I have it. No, it has you. It has you. It has you. And I think that's what the Lord's trying to do. What, what's in your hand today that God is calling you to surrender, but you're trying to keep on life support? And I think pride's probably a foundational issue of this, the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. I'll give you one illustration. There's, there's, there's several things that have come out of this that I want to I ask God for grace to grow in. One is forgiveness. One is how I receive criticism. These are all, these are all banana things for me, okay? These are all things that I, I am more ensnared to sin or to comforts than I would like to admit. One is evangelism. I want to grow in sharing the gospel. I don't, and one is sacrificial giving. But can I just focus on the forgiveness part? My, Alan and Hugh and our team, Eric and Steve, Marcus, they have, they've helped me see some of these things. They, they've, they've actually said, you know, Billy, um, even at 63 years of age, uh, even though you've been in ministry for a long time, we think you could still benefit from biblical counseling, from receiving biblical counseling. Do you know, it's not, it's, it's not, the, the, the whole thought of counseling, it's almost like, Oh, that's for like the weak, broken people. Did you know weak, broken people are the only people that exist in the world? You're in good company. Particularly in the way that I still can be so affected by my past. I, there's, <laughs> I walk around with my past. Somehow I, and so here's where the forgiveness thing comes in. I thought I was a pretty forgiving guy. But Jan very much has helped me with this. She said, I don't know, maybe you, have be, maybe you began forgiving your, your family, your parents, hurts in the church. I've, I'm, there's a lot, I've, I've got a whole list of things that I need to more fully forgive. And that's, what, that's, that's the awakening that's happening for me. I thought that my decision, my prayer time, I forgive them. I've even verbalized it, I forgive you. And I thought I was done but I'm still holding <laughs> the banana of being offended or getting angry at the life I lost with the insults they gave or the abuse they gave. And I'm, I'm still holding on to that unforgiveness. So I've been just trying to read stuff lately. So Tim Keller came out with a book called Forgiveness, for, to forgive or forgiveness and I was so affected by this part. Um, I have begun the process of forgiveness, but it's like an antibiotic. You know what you read on your antibiotics? It says, finish the bottle. <laughs> have you ever done this? There's still 10 pills in here. I feel good. I don't know why the song just came to my mind. Um, and I quit. What, 10 days later, <laughs> I'm coughing again because I didn't finish. And I think I've done that with forgiveness, in, particularly in this area. Keller talked about the family with a, a little boy, and they're, they're in a toy store. The little boy breaks a toy, and 
the parents go up dutifully to the owner and say, you know, please, we are so sorry. Our boy broke this toy, but we'll pay for it. And the, the owner says, listen, I was watching him. I, I was at the other end of the aisle. It was a total accident. Listen, don't you worry about it. So that's forgiveness, right? They're being released from a debt, right? So it's forgiveness. So does forgiveness mean no one has to pay? Who had to pay? The owner had to pay. Now, you, now be thinking about that. The owner was saying, I'll absorb the cost of letting you go free. And that's what hit me. There's still something in my heart that wants the other person to pay. I'm sorry, God. I am so sorry. There's uh, and then that's not how my Savior died for me. My Savior absorbed all of the wrath. How do you think I can go free? Because someone paid. It wasn't me. But Jesus paid for my sin. He paid for my sin. He absorbed the wrath, all of it. So he could release me from the debt. And then he gives me the Holy Spirit. You might say, yeah, but I'm not Jesus. You're not. I'm not. But we've been, we're in a union with him. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I'm able to now forgive like him. Otherwise, the scripture would not say forgive others as the Lord forgave you. Is that any, so wouldn't this be a banana issue? That's the stupidest thing to call it a banana issue. But it's, it's life support. Is I've been keeping subtly, I think it's subtle. Our team sees me constantly getting down into this discouragement and despair and depression and problem with identity. My wife sees me going through that. Does it, I, I just see I'm occasionally doing this and they're concerned for me. Enough to lovingly say, we think you could use some biblical counseling in this area. I do need biblical counseling in this area because I'm keeping too many things on life support. I've, sti I, I've still subtly wanted someone else to pay. And then I look at Jesus and, or I hear you saying, Jesus paid it all. Oh, Lord. Help me to forgive the way you're forgiving. And I got to tell you, it's, it's really helping and serving me. In the, in the hymn, uh, forbid it, Lord, it's in your notes, that I should boast. Save in the death of Christ, my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. And then the passage closes. Josh, you can come on up, buddy. The passage closes with the motivation about all of this is, this is even, it's so almost like, can we even say this? The motivation is that Christ wants to honor us. <laughs> he wants to honor us if we'll serve and follow him. If we serve like Jesus served, if we follow him where? Well, th th what this text confines us to is follow him to the cross. I need to die daily. 
to even the slightest hint of revenge, to the people-pleasing motives that grip my heart way too much, to considering my giving as though, you know, I, guys, I don't know about you, but I, I've gotten accustomed to a 10% giving. I don't even think about my giving anymore because it's, it's a discipline. That's a good thing. But I'm not quite sure that the Lord would see that as, oh, yeah, that, I count that as worship, Billy. Don't even think about giving. I'm not giving by faith. I'm not giving out of gratitude. I'm not giving because of what I received. There's just so many things, criticism, all that, all that kind of stuff. But following means following him to the cross, working for the harvest. Are you working in his harvest? Or are we working in everything else but the harvest? He says, where I am, there will my servant be. There is, guys, there's a unique experience, you know, in, in, in what I think are the wrongful abuses of the charismatic uh, issues, is just seeing the, the manifest presence of God as something to make church a better, a better experience for you. Oh, let's, oh, we, if, we could just have, if we could just have people feel the presence of God today, sermon might have stunk, but they will go away happy. You know, because it was just the presence of God, presence of God. I don't know that we're, all, that we're seeing that correctly. Jesus said, I will be with you always, even till the end of the age. But what's the context? As you make disciples of every nation. I mean, think about it. When, when have you most experienced that, that sense of the manifest presence of God? I mean, it's like, I don't want to leave this spot. The pleasure of the Lord, the the glory of the Lord. I am undone with this. I'm going to guess that it's likely that you're in a place where you recognize how much you needed him and you were serving in the, in the ministry of making disciples. It meant that you weren't trusting in yourself. You, you weren't scheduling your, you, you weren't under budget on, on, on helping others uh, become stronger followers of Christ and over budget on your personal comforts. I mean, listen, this is how bad it can be. I, you know, I, we do jobs, right? Let's say eight to five. A lot of it's are way more hours than that. And it's just so easy as I, I do, I do work. Let's just say artificial intelligence. I am the definition of artificial intelligence. I do work. And what's, what's the result? I get to go home and not be bothered. Oh, God. Oh, God. Are you experiencing the presence that Jesus wants to give you because you're, you're working in the harvest field? The joy of the harvest is stirring you. What you've received in his death is your treasure. And he then says, amazing, and I will honor him. For eternity. It'll be an eternity of honor. What will that look like? You know what it'll look like? <laughs> it's going to look like this. Well done. Well done. Do you live for the well done? I'm not talking about steak here anymore. <laughs> Do you live for the well done? Are you living for that? Well done, husband. Oh, you washed your wife in the water of the word and you prepared him to stand joyfully blessed in his presence on that day to receive all kinds of rewards of grace because you inspired her godliness. 
Well done, mom and dad, in ordering your time and managing your time and using your Sundays in this world where Sundays are optional and using your time to disciple your children. Well done. Well done in, in, in saying, you know what? I want to give to church planting. I want to give to, to the education of future pastors in our pastor's college. I, I want to I actually give in a way that requires faith, but it's all about the mission of God. Well done. I, I want to hear him say, well done. Why, why will he say well done? <laughs> because we were like Christ in his character. We were like Christ in his mission. And we were like Christ in seeking the glory of God. That's why he'll say, well done. Because you were so much like Jesus. All because of Jesus, right? Would you stand? Um, the last little quote in, the, uh, in your notes is from this hymn. This hymn about I survey, when I survey the wondrous cross. I love this last stanza. Would you read it with me? Would you read it with me? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. Jonathan and Vanessa, you're on our prayer team today. Would you guys come forward and as we sing, the singing time is a time you could come and receive prayer. You don't have to wait till the end. You can come while we're singing. This is a morning. I don't know. Please pray today. Would you? I, I, maybe maybe you, you don't do that here. I would encourage you not to run off. What the Spirit has spoken to our hearts today, He wants, he wants us to respond. When I survey the wondrous cross, there's a response to it, isn't there? Certainly you can do it there in your chair. You can come and ask for prayer. You can come. I, I just encourage you. I just, I just don't know how many people anymore know the joy of just getting, getting self out of just where you've been sitting, actually doing something that changes the context Get on your knees if you're able. If you're not, just come and sit in a different chair. Pray. I just don't know that enough people know what it is to experience God's presence and work in response to Scripture as we, as we just humble ourselves and call out to Him, confess the things that need to be confessed, express thankfulness for all that He is. I, I, hope, I hope that in, in the days ahead that we'll grow to be a church that the end of the service is one of the best parts because not just because the sermon was too long and it ended, but because, because I, had, I had a chance to just spend a few minutes on my knees before the Lord. And there's nothing more important I could have done at that moment. There's a lot of other things we need to do. But responding to him is really the first step of applying the message, right? So, guys, could you go ahead?